It's already been mentioned, this morning is Pentecost Sunday, and Pentecost is one of the dates on the Christian calendar. Now, the Christian calendar is not something that was invented by the Bible. It was something that in the wisdom of the church, they sought to order the life of the Christian community over the course of a year around the great events in redemptive history. And so as a result, we have Christmas, and we have Easter, and Good Friday, and these great events in salvation history, these great events where God has acted, and we respond, and so the church has ordered its life around these events. And if you pay attention to how the church calendar is ordered, you'll notice that it follows the order of the Trinity. And so the season on the church calendar of Advent, we primarily are focused on the promises in the Old Testament leading up to the birth of the Messiah. And so in a sense, you could say that it focuses on God the Father and his promises to the nation of Israel. And then from Christmas to Easter, there's the season of Lent, and then there's Good Friday, of course, and Easter Sunday, which focuses on the person of Christ. And then Pentecost Sunday takes, us in, takes our attention onto the Holy Spirit. Now, I think probably for most of us, uh, we get God the Father, and we kind of understand God the Holy Spirit, but I mean, God the Son, but the Holy Spirit for a lot of us is a little bit fuzzy. There was a, a big tome that was written on the Holy Spirit by a New Testament scholar named Gordon Fee. The title of it is God's Empowering Presence. It's, it's this brilliant, this wonderful book exploring the nature and the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, he opens up this book with an antidote about this student who approached a colleague of his and made this comment. He said, God the Father makes perfectly good sense to me, and God the Son I can quite understand, but the Holy Spirit is, quote, a gray oblong blur. (laughs) And I think for a lot of us, that's kind of conceptually what comes to mind when we think about the Holy Spirit. It's just this gray oblong blur. There was a survey put out by Christianity Today a few years ago entitled, Evangelicals and Their Favorite Heresies. That's a great title. And in the article, they talk about how a lot of what we think and say about Christ and the work of salvation is really a bit off. But they go on in the article, and the author writes this. He said, if evangelicals sometimes misunderstand doctrines about Jesus, the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, has it much worse. More than half, 51% of evangelicals say that the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being. And so most evangelicals, according to this survey, believe that the Holy Spirit is some kind of impersonal force and not a personal being. In other words, there's a whole lot of us out there that think about the Holy Spirit the way that Obi-Wan Kenobi spoke about the force. And do you remember what Obi-Wan said about the force? He said the force is what gives the Jedi his power. It is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and it penetrates us and it binds the galaxy together. And I think for a lot of us, we think about the Holy Spirit that way. The Spirit is that which empowers us, you know, especially the real Jedi Christians who do those special things like speak in tongues and prophesy and perform miracles and and such. And, and so we think about the Holy Spirit as this, you know, this 
amorphous force, this amorphous spiritual blob that sort of makes us feel and experience certain kinds of, uh, of stuff. But what, you, what I want you to see this morning is that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal, gray, oblong blur, but the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God. And I want you to see in our text, look at what it says down in chapter 2 of Acts, verses 1 to 3. I want you to see this. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And so there's this fascinating description of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the language that's used to describe the Holy Spirit, the metaphor, the symbol that's used to, that the author draws upon to describe the coming of the Holy Spirit is the language of wind and fire. Now notice he says it was a sound like a mighty rushing wind and there appeared tongues as of fire. It is like and as in other words, wind and fire is not so much what they saw or experienced, it was a metaphor to describe the ineffable work that they were experiencing in their, in their midst. And so he draws on this, the, the language of wind and fire because wind and fire are Old Testament metaphors to describe the personal presence of God. So think for a moment about fire. When God appears to Moses in the Old Testament, what is the, the visible kind of experience that Moses has? He meets God in a burning bush in fire. And then when God's personal presence leads the children of Israel through the wilderness, it's in a cloud by day, but then in a pillar of fire by night. You see, fire was a symbol of the personal presence of God. And then in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that is most commonly used to describe the personal presence of God as God intersects with creation is the Hebrew word ruach. And ruach is translated variously as breath, sometimes as wind, sometimes as spirit. But what it is typically describing is the personal presence of God interfacing with creation. And so when the author here just draws upon wind and fire to describe the Holy Spirit. He is not describing the work of some gray, oblong blur. He is speaking about the very personal presence of God among us. But what I want us to explore this morning is what does it mean when we talk about the personal presence of God coming and filling us? coming and working among us and through us. I mean, what does it even mean to talk about the Holy Spirit leading us and filling us and guiding us? What, what would it look like when a group of people were filled with and empowered by and experiencing the active work of the Holy Spirit? And so we're going to explore that together, that question, by looking together at this passage in Acts, the day of Pentecost. Now, just a word about Pentecost. On one level, you could say that Pentecost was a one-time, unrepeatable event in salvation history. On this day, God worked in a unique, one-off, powerful way. 
And in the same way that the incarnation of Jesus was a one-off experience, and the resurrection of Jesus was a one-off, one-time event in human history, so too the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was a one-time event in salvation history. The Spirit of God, the personal presence of God, was poured out in a unique and powerful way on a community of people. But on, on the other hand, At the end of the day of Pentecost, Peter declares that the promise of the personal presence of God, the Holy Spirit, is not just for this group on this day, on this event, but he says this promise of the Holy Spirit is also for you. So we could say the day of Pentecost happened, the Spirit of God was poured out, and you could say the day of Pentecost happens. The Spirit of God continues to be poured out to work and move on our lives, the very personal presence of God. But if the Spirit of God is poured out on our lives and among us, how would we know it? What would be the evidence of the work of the Spirit of God among us? And I want you to see three things in our text that is evidence of the work of the Spirit among a people. I want you to see three things that the Spirit of God does when he was poured out on the day of Pentecost and what the Spirit of God continues to do when the very personal presence of God comes to interface with us, his people. And the first thing that I want you to see that happens when the Spirit is poured out is, number one, the Spirit of God forms a new community. The Spirit of God forms a whole new, we could even say, humanity. Look what it says again. So this uh, mighty rushing wind comes in, and then there were these tongues of fire, and then look what it says. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I think maybe when we hear, hear this language of the Spirit being poured out and these people speaking in tongues, many of us, many of us wonder what on earth this is talking about. What does that mean that the Spirit of God was poured out and they began to speak in tongues. I can remember back when I was, you know, in, I don't know, 7th, 8th grade, visiting my grandmother's church, and she went to a Pentecostal, charismatic church, and I remember there was a moment in the service where everyone, the, the whole service, it felt like, like a, a congregation of hummingbirds, there's this, you know, and there was this audible, like, um, inarticulate mumbling, you know, you know, and, uh, I was confused. I'm like, what is this? You know, and my grandmother, this is, they were speaking in tongues, you know, and, and tongues is, uh, you know, for, for many people, this inarticulate speech that is a heavenly language. And of course, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we'll get to this later in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, there is something like that. We'll talk about what that is. But here, what they speak in is not the tongues of angels, but the tongues of men. They are speaking a variety of different earthly languages. And if you could hear, if you leaned into our reading this morning, you could hear a variety of different tongues that were speaking out the praises of God in different languages. Now, why on earth, when the Spirit of God falls, why is it that this is what happens? Why is it that all of a sudden these people start bursting out and praising God in these different languages? Well, I think what's happening here is a reversal of something that happened after the fall of humanity into sin. 
And after the fall of humanity into sin, one of the results was confusion and division and dispersion and ultimately warring and violence among different tribes and languages and people. The Old Testament has that wonderful story of the Tower of Babel where uh, this people comes together and they begin the tower and they are building as one people and then ultimately as an act of judgment, their language is confused and these different languages develop and at the end of the story, they are divided and they're dispersed and they're going their ways. And ultimately, the divisions of tongues in different geographies and places becomes different nationalities and races. And then those races look down and despise one another and feel superior over one another based on simple and stupid things like the language you speak or the color of your skin or whatever. But here on the day of Pentecost, the Tower of Babel is being reversed. And the people, they begin divided, different people groups, different languages, and at the end, they are together brought as one, the the many becoming one in a new community, in a new family. In fact, at the end of the day of Pentecost, the result is actually a new community, and the book of Acts describes that for us in Acts chapter 2. Look at what it says in verse 42. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of of bread and of prayers. Verse 44, and all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. The result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was that this many people who were diverse and different were all of a sudden brought together in one new community who had all things in common and who were together. And friends, when the Holy Spirit is at work among people, this is the fruit, this is the evidence. The many who are diverse and different become one unified people who are together. In fact, this is what has happened throughout human history since the birth of the church. You know, a lot of people call the day of Pentecost the birthday of the church. But you could also say that the day of Pentecost was the birthday of an entirely different kind of human community that the world to date had never seen before. A new community of equality where rich and poor, where slave and free, where black and white, where Asian and Hispanic, where all were brought together in one community of equality. And this is what the Spirit of God does when he is at work among us, when God's personal presence, his loving personal presence that brooded over the dark abyss before and brought creation into being in Genesis 1, when the Spirit of God comes to brood over a community of people, what he brings out is a community of equality and love and unity. And that's what we need in our world, isn't it? I mean, we live in a divided, a messed up, broken world. And God's presence is at work, his redemptive, saving, healing presence is at work to form a new community of unity and equality. You know, it was beautiful when I was down in Mexico over the last couple days. It was just so cool because there was at one point where I just kind of looked around the work team, these people that were doing this work, and it was very, and it was diverse. There was the impoverished mom for whom we were building this house, and she was working alongside more affluent, you know, Americans from Sierra Madre. And then there were eight-year-olds and 80-year-olds. And there were, 
you know, there was just a diversity of people, like everything in between. And they were being brought together to, with a common mission and a common purpose for the common glory of Jesus. And that's what we need the Spirit of God to do among us, is to so work among us that we become more and more a common people with a common mission and common purpose that lay down the minor things that might divide us, our political preferences, our, you know, particularities in theology or whatever, or our preferences on, on, on you know, I don't know, this, that, or the other thing, and bring us together as one common humanity. So the Spirit of God, when the personal presence of God is at work among us, He is at work, number one, to form us into a new community, a new humanity. But I want you to see that on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit was at work not only to form us into a new humanity, a new community, but when the personal presence of God is poured out, He empowers the church to be on mission. Just prior to Acts chapter 2 is Acts chapter 1. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. That was profound. Before (laughs) Acts 2 is Acts 1. But before the outpouring of the Spirit is the promise of Jesus. And Jesus commanded his disciples, he said, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Because he says in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be empowered by my personal presence and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Do you see what it says there? The Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost to empower the church to be God's witnesses for mission. We are empowered by mission and that's why after the Spirit's poured poured out, the first thing that happens is Peter stands up And he gives witness and testimony to the resurrected Jesus because this is what the Spirit empowers us to do, is to be on mission, giving witness in our words and our deeds to the saving, healing, loving power of God manifest in Jesus Christ. And the result of the outpouring of the Spirit was absolutely remarkable. You know, my wife and daughters have been reading through uh, the Gospels in, uh, you know, our kids are schooled at home, and part of their schooling is they're reading through the New Testament, and they just got through reading through the Gospels, and one of the things that my wife or daughters, I don't know who suggested it, um, to do, one of the, the things that was suggested that they do was um, that when they come to the, the words of the disciples in the Gospels, they would read them in the voice of Napoleon Dynamite. If you've not seen Napoleon Dynamite, you should. You, should just, you can become culturally illiterate. And, um, but they would, uh, Napoleon Dynamite is this kind of, you know, nerdy, I mean, ultra nerdy high school kid who's got this kind of like dull sense about him and kind of a bad attitude. And come on, I'll do it, okay, you know? This kind of like is his speech. And so they would use that kind of speech whenever they read the words of the disciples. And they said, you know, it's remarkable how well it makes you understand what's actually happening in the Gospels. And then interestingly, when they read the words of the Pharisees, they would, use, they would do the voice of Kip. And so Napoleon was the disciples and Kip was the, um, the Pharisees. 
But they said something interesting. They said, you know, when we started the book of Acts and we tried to read the words of the disciples in the voice of Napoleon, it just didn't work anymore. And I said, that's a sermon. I mean, that's transformative. The Spirit of God comes in and transforms this group of people and he makes them his faithful witnesses. Barbara Brown Taylor, a preacher, put it like this. She said, the Holy Spirit performed artificial resuscitation on a room full of well-intentioned bubblers and turned them into a force that changed the history of the world. The Spirit of God took this group of frightened, marginalized, small, only 120 folks gathered in the upper room, And at the end of the day of Pentecost, they were a group of 3,000 that went out and turned the world upside down. And the hinge that turned this group of well-intentioned babblers into being a force that turned the world upside down, the hinge was the personal presence of God. And Jesus knew this to be the case. That's why he said, wait. He said, you can't engage in my mission unless you receive my power. And friends, we cannot, I mean, I I long, and, and, and so do you, I long to see us become more and more a unified community of love and diversity and equality, don't you? And I long to see this community bear strong witness to Jesus through our deeds of justice, through our works of mercy and compassion and love, and through our bold and confident witness of Jesus and his work in our lives but you and I cannot do it alone. We need the personal presence of God among us. In other words, we need to live as dependent people. Now, don't get me wrong. I think sometimes when we think about the power of the Holy Spirit, we say, you know, we've got to just let go and let God. And finally, when we come to an end of ourselves, that's when the new power of the Spirit in our lives begins. But I've always wondered, like, what exactly do you mean by that? Like, what does it mean to come to an end of yourself and to let go and to let God? I mean, are we not supposed to do anything? And I think a better model is the thought that God doesn't tend to uh, turn a car that's not moving. Or if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat, in other words, you've got to get in the game. You've got to open up your home to invite neighbors in. You've got to put yourself into uncomfortable, awkward positions. You've got to go down to Mexico and build houses with a group full of weird people from this church. You've got to, I'm just kidding with that. They're wonderful people from this church, right, Ron? Yeah. But you've got to get in the action, and God empowers us when we begin to take our steps out in faith, and we begin to take risks. It is this that God empowers and moves. But what does exactly, what does it exactly mean when the Holy Spirit, how does the Holy Spirit empower us for witness? You know, if you think about the whole word empowerment, empowerment is really about creating a people who don't live with ongoing dependence, uh, where they always have to say, what do I do next? What do I do? I'm just totally dependent upon you. I, no, you're empowered to make decisions and to lead and to do this. What is it that empowers the church to lead and to make decisions and to get engaged in action? 
And that leads us to our final aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit that we, we see in this text. Not only does the Holy Spirit form us into a new community and empower us for mission, but he empowers us for mission by directing our hearts to God. Notice what it says back in the text. Look, it talks about all these people in verses 5 down to verse 10 who speak in all these other languages. And what are they speaking? When the Spirit of God moves in them, what do they begin to spontaneously and with a burst of joy begin to declare? Look what it says down in verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What is the Holy Spirit doing in this text? He's not only empowering the church for mission, but he's directing a community of people's hearts to God. One of my favorite conversion stories is the conversion of the late founder of the movement of churches called Vineyard, uh, whose name was John Wimber. And before he became a Christian, he described himself as a, quote, beer-guzzling musician. And uh, he played, uh, you know, gigs with the Righteous Brothers and whatnot. And he describes how he was converted while, quote, chain-smoking his way through a Quaker-led Bible study, which, what a wonderful way to get converted. And after his conversion, he became this voracious reader of the Bible and just poured over the Bible. And the part of the Bible that he loved the most, that he poured over the most, were uh, the Gospels and Acts. And one day he came to his Bible study leader and he asked him the question. He said, so, he said, um, when do we get to do the stuff? And the Bible study leader was like confused. He's like, what do you mean? The like, what are you talking about? He says, you know, the stuff, the stuff Jesus did, you know, cleansing the lepers, raising the dead, healing the sick, you know, casting out demons, that kind of stuff. When do we get to do the stuff? And the guy said, the stuff? He said, uh, we don't do that stuff anymore. To which Wimber replied, you mean I gave up drugs for that? <laughs> now, of course, Wimber was onto something that the Spirit of God does when he is at work among a community of people. He does begin to do, and he has done for the last 2,000 years, globally it's true of global Christianity, that the Spirit of God works to perform miracles and such like that. But the prime work of the Spirit is not to enable us to do kind of Jedi-level Christianity where we're doing the stuff. The main work of the Spirit of God among us is to direct our hearts to God. You see, you were made for God. You have a God-shaped vacuum, a hole in your heart that can only be satisfied in the presence and in the love of God. And the Spirit of God, the very personal presence of God was poured out on the church to make God's presence near to us so that we experience the glory of his presence, the power of his love, and we are changed. Great British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones described it like this. He said, you know, he said sometimes, he says, I can imagine walking on the beach beside my child. And all the while, I am with my child. But from time to time, I lift my child up in my arms and I give them a big embrace. And the filling of the Spirit is when the present God, who is all present, always with us, 
actually enables us to experience something of the beauty of his grace and his goodness and his love through his son, Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards described it like this. He said, you know, he goes, sometimes he says, you can talk about uh, God, but he says there's a huge difference from talking about God and having an opinion about God, that God is holy and gracious. And he said there's a difference between that and having a sense of the loveliness and the beauty of that holiness and grace. And he said there's a difference between having a rational understanding that honey is sweet and actually tasting and experience honey sweet. And the Spirit of God, the very personal presence of God was poured out on the church so that we might have glimpses and moments where we experience the love and the grace of God that comes to full expression on our behalf in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus for us. And the means that he uses are his word, the good news of the gospel, and the bread and the cup very often, these tangible expressions of his love, that when we hear the word and we receive the sacraments, that God, by his spirit, uses those instruments to bring near to our experience the reality of his love. And is this that actually directs the heart away from self to God. You see, you, you praise things that you experience as being lovely and beautiful and amazing. You go to that restaurant, you come out, you're like, you should go there. That place was amazing. That cup of coffee was incredible. That movie was outstanding. That book, oh, you should read it. You're praising because you've experienced. And this is the power that moves the church out in the mission. It's a community of people who have been impacted by the love and the power of God. And that can only happen by the Spirit of God among us. We need the personal presence of God. When we pray for the Spirit of God to come and to fill us and to strengthen us and to change us, this is what we're asking for. And so I want to invite you as we now turn to share together in the bread and the cup to join with me in prayer and ask that God would enable us to experience, not just know and have a rational understanding of his love, but to taste and to see that the Lord is good. Lord God, we ask that as we move toward sharing together in the bread and the cup, God, you've met us in our singing, you've met us in your word, you've met us in our prayers, and we ask, God, that now you would meet us at the table through the broken body and the shed blood of your son, Jesus. Would you meet us in these tangible elements with a tangible experience of your great love? And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.